Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. So today on the Focus on Why podcast, I am joined by Keith Harris. Keith, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It is lovely to have you here. It's very nice. I can't believe it's been 19 years since I last saw you. I know. I'm shocked by that, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. I don't know where the time has gone. Well, let me just give um, the audience a little bit of a background on who you are. In fact, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let you just wade in and tell everybody what it is you're doing right now, and then we'll they can work out what you, who you are and what you do and why you do it themselves. Well, right now, I'm at that happy period where I, I would describe myself as kind of semi-retired. I mean, I, I still do some things. You know, I still do uh, some music business training. I'm on the board of a few charities that I work for, uh, the music, MIDI Music Company. Uh, Universal Music Sound Foundation, English Folk Expo, and I'm a non-executive director at a studio called Point Blank Studios. Um, and uh, I am an advisor to an organization called In Place of War. Uh, yeah, but these are not really full-time occupations, none of them. Um, but that's kind of what I'm doing these days. So that doesn't sound semi-retired to me. That sounds pretty, pretty busy, but were you busier before? Yeah, I used to be busy. You know, now I'm <laughs> rel- now I'm relatively relaxed. You know, um, because as, I guess because most of these things aren't paying jobs. You know, I, I don't feel under the same kind of pressure as when I'm, you know, working for an organisation that's that's actually paying me. Only only one of those things actually pays me. So, you know, it's it's it's. But that, that's not true actually. Universal pay me. <laughs> <laughs> And and the performing rights society going for training, but generally speaking, most of what I do is stuff that I want to do. So, what did you used to do before? Share that with us. Uh, before that, I really I'm best known, if I'm known at all, as a music industry manager. And the thing that kind of attracts attention, should I say, is the fact that I've worked with Stevie Wonder for 42 years. Um, you know, we started working together when I was the general manager of the Motown label in the UK. Uh, and then I went to LA to work directly with him. And since then I've been a music industry manager. That's really been my bread and butter. Yeah. And how did it all start? What sort of spurred you into music? I think it started, to be perfect, it probably started with my mother. My mother always used to play what for those days was pop music around the house. And I really liked it. We used to listen to something on Saturday morning called Uncle Mac's Children's Favourites, uh, which played the kind of the pop songs of the day, which were, you know, I mean, really kind of twee <laughs> children's songs a lot of the time. But I, I just really liked music. And, and obviously pop music was what I was listening to at the time. And I, I was fortunate enough to be around when, you know, the Beatles first broke although I was already a fan of people like Lonnie Donegan and the Shadows and people like that. But when the Beatles broke and, and the whole popular music thing took off, 
you know, I was absolutely addicted and uh, was really motivated by that to want to be involved somehow. You know, I mean, what actually happened was that I suppose like most pe people of my age, boys of my age, you know, I, I, looked, I learned to play guitar, wanted to be in a group, you know, uh, was in a group with friends, you know, and suddenly realized that I wasn't even the best guitar player in the group, let alone the best guitar player in the world. And so probably maybe I should try and do something else, you know, and ended up getting sort of shunted sideways into management. And so I started managing artists and then ended up working in a record company and then moving out of record company. <laughs> um, but really just being involved in music in any way that I could. So you followed your instinct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I follow, what I like to say, and, and I think for the most part, this is true, is that I've been you know, incredibly lucky. You know, um, loads of people would like to have done a lot of the things that that I have done. And uh, my daughter always chides me for saying, Dad, you know, you all say it's luck. Uh, you know, I say, yeah, but I, all, I usually have a little addendum to that. And the addendum is from, uh, the, there's a South African golfer called Gary Player. And somebody once said to him, Gary Player, people say, you know, you're a lucky golfer. And he said, um, yeah, that might be true. But one thing I've noticed is the more I practice, the luckier I get. And I like to kind of paraphrase that and say that I've been really lucky in the music industry. But one of the things that I find to be true is the harder I work, the luckier I get. You know, and that's kind of really what's followed me around. You know, because I love it so much, I'm prepared to put in the, the hours and the hard yards. You know, and I think that's paid off for me. And what have those hours and hard yards looked like? Um, well, it kind of depends you know, who I was working for. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, when I, my first record company job, I worked for a record company called Transatlantic Records. It's a very small English label, did mainly uh, traditional folk music. And my job was to do regional radio promotions. And that involved me driving around to radio stations. And at this time, commercial radio in the UK was embryonic. A capital radio and LBC, which were the first commercial radio stations, had been on air for less than a year. And I had to drive around and visit these stations and try to get the, the music that I was kind of peddling at the time played. And in about 18 months, I worked for Transatlantic Records. I drove 90,000 miles. Now, one of the reasons for that, and this kind of is a sign of the times, is that Transatlantic, it, it was quite a, a small company and whereas with the bigger record companies if you were doing a job like that you kind of had an expense account you could go out and stay in hotels and so on and so forth this was 1975 and they only had a budget for me to get a bed and breakfast and in my first couple of weeks i remember finishing the day's work and trying to get a bed and breakfast. This was before you could book online or any of that kind of stuff. You know, it was a matter of going, knocking on the door and saying, you know, I'd like a bed for the night, you know, 
obviously they had bed and breakfast signs outside these places and finding that I was going around five, six, seven places that had vacancy signs and people saying, uh, we haven't got any vacancies. So I thought, you know, I can't do this. So what happened was that when I finished work every night, didn't matter where I was, I would drive home. And sometimes that meant driving back from Manchester or Glasgow, <laughs> you know, and this is in the days before the motorway system was complete. So that's why I drove so, so many miles is because after work every night, I wasn't prepared to put myself through the humiliation of being turned away from bed and breakfasts. And, uh, and so I basically just drove home. That's crazy. They've been turned away. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, at that time, I, I don't think that the Race Discrimination Act had actually been passed. And so, you know, people feel, felt, you know, it's their house. They, had, they had felt free to turn you away. And you can imagine that that was um, quite common then. You know, I mean, I'm sure everybody knows that there used to be signs on bed and breakfast saying no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and it wasn't very long after that was a, a very common sign. Wow, things have changed. Things have changed a lot, but there's still a long way to go. To say the least, especially, you know, we're recording, you know, in the week of the whole sort of protests about George Floyd and, you know, so on and so forth. And, and um, you know, I've, I've just had to remind people that although that's one extreme of what happens, it's not like that only happens in America. And, and you know, racism, wherever it is, needs to be challenged. You know, even now, it's, it's, it's quite surprising and shocking when you see something as starkly illustrated as that. But it has a lot of smaller increments, which all lead to that. And what can you do about it? Um, uh, funnily enough, a friend of mine called me up yesterday and he was saying, you know, you know, in our company, we've tried to be as egalitarian as possible. We've hired people and, you know, we, we always try to set out equal opportunities, policies and so on. You know, I don't really know what else I can do. And I said, well, really what I would like people to do is challenge it. It's so easy just to stay quiet. Think to yourself, well, I don't agree with that, but yeah, I'm not going to say anything. Yeah. What people need to do is to say something. Because otherwise, there's a, a tacit understanding from the people who are, who are being discriminatory that you agree. In their heads, if you don't say anything, they believe that what they're saying is being well received. You know, so really, all I can say to people is, where possible, call people out on it. I mean, don't put yourself in physical danger, but you know, call people out on it. If you, if you disagree with what they're saying, and it's racist or sexist or, or whatever, then say something. Yeah, I, I'm well. I'm with you on that, and I'm, I'm really glad that we're having this conversation when we are right now because this podcast can go out and it, it can make a difference. I know it will make a difference because it will be heard and people will speak out. Well, yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it the scene, it's a moment, and I've kind of seen these moments. Maybe not quite as extreme. I've seen these moments in the past, and it's right at the top of the agenda for a few days or a few weeks or a few months, but it doesn't stay forever. 
what I'd like it, <laughs> it to be it to stay forever. Mm. You know, um, I think everybody, certainly everybody who has children, would like their children to live in a better world, and that's our responsibility. You know, because a lot of the stuff that happens, it's not innate; it's taught. You know, so if you teach people properly, then the world will be a better place. And how much has music been a way of teaching people the the moral values? Um, well, obviously, there, there are some certain people who are more political about their music and and um, you know make statements, and it has its place. I think probably where I would like to see music is just. In, in its values as an art form, because it's a universal language. You know, everybody understands it. Everybody can participate. You get music, to, you get musicians together from different parts of the world who've never met, and they can sit down and play. You know, it, it's got that kind of universality about it, which I don't think anything else has. You obviously, you can translate books. You know, people understand films. You can put subtitles. But music, as soon as you hear it, it has a kind of a universal emotional appeal. So it, it, it has a very special place in, in terms of, of what it can do in terms of reaching people. And working with someone such as Stevie Wonder for, as you said, 42 years, how has that relationship evolved over that time? It's been quite interesting because I think that what happened was when, when I first met Stevie, which was in 1977, um, when I was still at Motown, he was, I think, 28 and I was 27. And what was remarkable was that, you know, he was born in Saginaw, raised in Detroit, had lived in America all his life. I was born in Newcastle, you know, raised in the north of England, gone to university in Scotland and moved to London. It was amazing how we saw eye to eye. The communality between us was was remarkable. And that's kind of why the relationship has lasted so long, because probably more than anything, we're friends. Yes, we work together and we have a working relationship, but we're friends and we see eye to eye. And it's, I think, the amazing thing, because, you know, we still talk, we've, we've spoken a lot over the last three or four weeks, certainly over lockdown. You know, we've spoken a lot more than we had been doing for a while. And... Um, it's still remarkable that we still see things the same way. When I was working with Stevie full time, it was quite funny how somebody would say something and I knew what he was thinking about it and he knew what I was thinking about it. And, and afterwards, you know, when we discussed it, it was just so funny that we both said the same thing. Sometimes I used to say to him, look, you know, you're tired. You, you, you just go to bed. I'll do your interview for you, because because you know, especially if it's on the phone. I'll just I'll do I'll I'll just do your interview for you because I know what you I know what you're going to say anyway. So that's great. I love that. So what you you said you mentioned that you were working at Motown. What were you doing in Motown? Well, what happened was that in the seventies, Motown was what's known as a licensed label of EMI. So basically they had a, a business deal with Motown that they would release and promote their material in the UK. And so EMI had inside their offices, a little Motown office, 
know, and I worked in the Motown office and I was the head of promotions initially. And that job involved me um, taking the records off to Radio One and what's now called Capital FM, but it's called Capital Radio in those days. Um, and into all the pubs and, well, not pubs, but mainly the clubs, you know, to, to make sure that the Motown records got as much exposure as possible. And it also involved, I guess, what would in another record company be called artist relations. So when the Motown artists came over, you know, I'd be kind of looking after them and making sure that things were right if they were touring and, you know, I was their point of contact. So it kind of, you know, threw me into the world of, of relating to, you know, these black American artists who I'd obviously never met and were from a slightly different world. But it was, you know, it was great. It was, for me, obviously, it was, it was a really exciting time because we're talking 1976. A lot of these people were just names off a, you know, for record cover. You know, so when I remember uh, when Smokey Robinson came in and, and having to look after Smokey for a week with his, his wife and his two children and, and you know, you're kind of pinching yourself. Yeah, you know, as I said before, um, I was born in Newcastle. I lived my whole life in the north of England. Uh, and then I say I went to, up to university in Scotland and that was my world. That's what I knew. And these people were in another galaxy, you know, the Smokey Robinson, Marvin Gaye, the Supremes, the Commodores, uh, Stevie Wonder, obviously all these people I was, I was coming across and meeting and, and knowing personally. Um, you know, I think the second artist that I remember coming was a lady called Thelma Houston. We had a hit record called Don't Leave Me This Way. And it, it was amazing to see the, 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 the way we kind of related to each other because they didn't really, black British people was a new thing for them. <laughs> and to see that we had a, a sort of, a kind of common touching point was really good. And, and, and that was really great for me as well. So you literally just sort of strolled along from succession from one role to another and meeting all these incredible people. And seeing music, you mentioned earlier that it changed. It was at its embryonic stages when you first started. Yeah. How, how has it evolved to where it is now? And where do you see music going? Well, I think what happened was it's almost come full circle. Because in, in the late 1950s, everything was really quite, um, it revolved around singles. You know, somebody had a hit song and that then kind of made them a star. And there were a, a limited number of kind of entrepreneurs who were responsible for making people into the, into the stars of the day. For instance, there was a guy called Larry Parnes, who you know, was a, an impresario, as they call him in those days, who controlled you know, a lot of the, of the big stars. You know, kind of like a Simon Cowell type figure. You know? And people released singles, which then through the 60s, it became that people started releasing albums. You know, the Beatles uh, were kind of pioneers in so much as, you know, I mean, off the back of some, off, off the back of Buddy Holly, you know, Buddy Holly and the Crickets were probably the first self-contained music group that were writing their own material and performing their own material, you know, two guitars, bass and drums, you know, that kind of setup. And then came the Beatles. And of course the Beatles went global. And after that, then it became normal for people to be writing their own material and performing their own material. 
And then people started to buy albums. The Beatles were the first group I remember, probably not the first group, the first group I remember who would release singles that weren't on their album. You know, they, so, so then people started buying albums as a, I mean, they were called LPs in England. I think, I think actually Bob Harris was the person that I remember who first started talking about it being an album. <laughs> I mean, classic whispering Bob fashion. Um, but they were called LPs, long playing records. The industry then evolved to be geared to selling kind of long playing records rather than selling singles. And what's happened is in recent years, of course, because of the, the way that the internet works and people being able to pick and choose just the individual tracks they like, we're now back to a market where people are buying singles about individual songs. The other parallel with, with when the industry first started is that in the embryonic stages, the industry was run by mavericks. It was, it was young people, you know, who they'd never done this before. People didn't really know how to promote a record. And, you know, people had really wacky ideas for getting things out there and getting attention. And, you know, and it, it was all new and people were just making their own way. And it was really exciting. And then over the years, it gradually got more formulaic and less spontaneous and more of a you know, traditional business. And the internet and social media have kind of given the control back to the mavericks and the creatives. So now we're seeing you know, an upsurge. I mean, if I think about the kind of UK grime scene, if like Stormzy and, and so on, so they kind of did it for themselves because they had the tools to do it for themselves again. So the way I see it, the industry is actually quite exciting again because young people have, have taken control. You know, we've kind of had our day and, and you know, I, I've, I've loved it. But, you know, I, I can see a, a vibrance about the business now and, and, and people kind of taking the control and taking it where they want it to go rather than taking it where us older generation of people told them they had to take it. And the work that you're doing now with universities and, and the charities and, and colleges and things, explain what, what does it means to you to work with these young people? Well, what happened was, again, from my point of view, I wasn't seeing, <laughs> it sounds slightly arrogant, I wasn't seeing people like myself, you know, coming up through the business. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I had the benefit of a, of a British public school education, you know, and I kind of know how to navigate the system. But most black British people are not in that situation. And I actually wasn't seeing people like myself coming through. And when I asked the question, why not? Well, people said, well, you know, people haven't got the qualifications and they, you know, we, we don't know where to look and people aren't, you know, we, it's not that we're in any, any way biased or prejudiced. We just can't find the people. So I thought to myself, well, actually, if we could make sure that people had the access to the information, I'm sure the people are out there. So for a long time now, I've been doing talks and seminars and workshops and that kind of stuff to help to give people the tools to be able to enter the industry. And more recently, because, because I got involved in that honors degree in commercial music at the University of Westminster, uh, which was the first of its kind, and we had a very high percentage of 
BAME students, you know, ethnic minorities. And interestingly enough, we had a very high proportion of ethnic minority lecturers on that course. And that was to some extent an attempt to make people see things in a slightly different way. Because people have always seen plenty of black people in front of the camera, but had no idea there were so few behind. You know, so that the work that I've been doing and the things that I get involved in, a lot of them, are about changing perception and giving people the opportunity to see somebody, you know, a black person teaching, if you like, a black person on the other side of, of the business, not just as taking stuff, but giving things out. And I think that's quite important. And have you been recognised for your work in the, in, in the university stage? Uh, yeah, well, the University of Westminster gave me an honorary doctorate, which was, which was you know, unexpected, uh, much appreciated. Uh, so I got that in 2007, I think. If I turned around, I'd be able to tell you. I can see, I can <laughs> see on the wall, yeah. <laughs> um, but so, 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 yeah, I did get an honorary doctorate for that. And then in 2016, I think, 15 or 16, anyway, a while ago, a few years ago, I got an OBE from the Queen, which was also very nice. You know, so I've, I've been recognised. I, I certainly can't complain about getting recognition. And the recognition, it, that's important to sort of trailblaze for the generation that you're trying to inspire. I, yeah, I think that, that it, people need to see people like them who have been able to do something you know, out of the ordinary, if you like, or, or to on a, on a higher level. You know, people don't want to be at entry level for their whole career. And they'd like to be able to see that they actually step forward. So even though I have reservations about what I have done personally, I think it's important that people see people like me. And actually, I want them to think, you know, I could do that better than him. Not as well as, you know, I could do better because there really isn't anything apart from the fact, like I say, that I'm a middle class black person with a, a higher level of education. I can't see anything different about me. You know, given the opportunity, there are thousands and thousands of young black people out there who could do what I do. And why is it important for you to to do all the work you're doing right now? I think it's part. I think it's part of the benefit of realizing, you know, how fortunate I've been. You know, I, I don't want to give the impression I've done it by myself. You know, there have been loads of people who've helped me along the way, and once you recognize that, then you start to recognize that you ought to be helping other people too. You know, I think you have to have a mindset. I remember I was talking to, I think it was, there was an artist called Gil Scott Heron. And we toured with, I mean, Gil Scott Heron was, was support to Stevie on, on a tour we did in, in America in the 1980s. And I remember, I think it was an interview Gil was doing. 
And somebody was saying, so why would you do that? I mean, and almost the question you've asked me. And his answer was, why wouldn't I? And I think that that's really the thing, which is that given the position that I'm in, given the benefits I've had, and the stuff that I'm doing, I mean, why wouldn't I do that? You know, it's it's the sensible thing to do. If I can help in any way to bring people through and, you know, as we talked about earlier, ameliorate their position, it helps the whole of society. It helps, you know, our children have a better future. It helps everybody look at things slightly differently. And for better or for worse, there are a limited number of people who are in my position that can do that. So, you know, I intend to use what tools I have to try and improve the situation. And why will they listen to you? I don't know whether they will, to be perfectly honest. You know, I, I think one of the things that I, that I do realise, though, is that what usually happens if you complain or you have, you know, an axe to grind, which I do about, you know, the treatment of, of minorities in society, is that people like to kind of say, yeah, well, you know, just got a chip on their shoulder because they haven't really done very well or they haven't succeeded or they haven't, you know. So by being recognized in the way I've been recognized over the years, I think, well, for most people, that's going to eliminate that. You know, it would be strange for people to accuse me of having a chip on my shoulder when (laughs) what chip, could that be you know i've had a a long career in something that that i really wanted to do and have been allowed to do i'm reasonably well off you know i'm not a millionaire but i'm reasonably well off you don't need to be a millionaire i'm I'm happy with my lot i've been recognized by the queen and, and and others you know i have no chip on my shoulder i just see things are wrong and need to say that so hopefully uh, it will drive things forward absolutely and and seeing the work that you've done and and hearing of the things that you've helped facilitate in the past i have no doubt that people will sit up and listen Uh, well i'd like to think so i mean like I i don't think that people you know i don't want to preach to people and i don't want to set myself up as being you know better than anybody but i do think that it's much easier to stay quiet and to say something and uh, given the opportunity to say something, which thank you very much for giving me, <laughs> I will uh, I will get out there and say something, you know, and people take it or leave it. That's the great thing about, I suppose that's the great thing about podcasting, whatever, which is if you don't like it, you can turn it off. Absolutely. And it's, it's a great medium to, be able to sort of express very freely what it is you want. And, and as you said, people can pick and choose to be to be your audience and that's their free choice just as it's your free choice to to come on and and share your thoughts today and i mean i sorry sorry, one thing i was going to say to you is one thing i find very liberating (laughs) about and this is this is a a, going to sound a counterintuitive thing is that one of the things i find very liberating about it is that i'm not on social media so i say this stuff and i don't see people's reaction you know, which I think sometimes can be off-putting and restricting. 
You know, I mean, I'm aware of, of people getting trolled on social media and, and people using a very negative way to be to put out hate. And, you know, I don't see any of that. So I don't care. <laughs> I actually don't care. I just say what I want to say. And people take it or leave it. Like I said, then turn it off if they don't like it. I don't care. I don't think they'll turn it off. So oh, I hope they don't turn it off. That's <laughs> for sure. So. I've loved hearing what you've been saying, your journey, your story, and and how much you're now giving back. It's incredible to see all of the different boards that you're sitting on and the, the charities that you're working with. What's what's going to be coming next for you, Keith? Um, you know, I really don't know. Yes, I've I've uh, because it, we're in lockdown at the moment, and I kind of stopped the work that I was doing just before lockdown started. I haven't really pursued that much. You know, it's actually fun enough. Somebody actually approached me, oddly enough, about doing a series of podcasts. <laughs> but I haven't done any. So that's one of the things I'm, I'm sort of thinking about. I have been approached by somebody else about maybe trying to put a book together. You know, again, you know, my overriding thing is, yeah, but who would read it? So... If I get to the point where I'm convinced that people would actually read it, then I might do that. I haven't really decided exactly what comes next. You know, I'm, I'm taking some time. I'm, I'm not as busy as I was. I think when you say who would read it, it's more a case of why you'd write it. And something you said earlier, it's all about changing perception. Mm -hmm. And if that was your focus, perhaps then that, that would be a reason for you to do it. Yes, that's true. Um, funnily enough, I was, talk I was talking to my wife about this a couple of days ago because partly because of the open letter I wrote to the in music industry you know following the the George Floyd death and blackout day as it was called where people turned off all their Instagram feeds and people stopped work for a day and I was saying I remember a conversation I had with a guy who was a product manager for one of my artists and this was years ago we're talking like 30 years ago and we were sitting actually the photo shoot and and while the photo shoot was going on because these things can be very long you know sitting with this guy in his car and we we're chatting away we we're chatting about all kinds of things that are broad and broad and long you know they're just talking about stuff and at one point having talked for you know maybe an hour an hour and a half he said to me yeah but it's it's kind of different for you really because you because you're not really black and i said what he said, well, you know, I mean, you're not really black. I mean, you know, like, you know, black, black. You're not like a street black kind of. And I, I realized in that moment that rather than change his perception of what black people are, he would rather label me as not black. You know, because he had a perception of what black people were and, you know, what it meant to be black. And didn't realize that black people could be just like him, you know, just as middle class with the same depth and range of knowledge or, or anything like that. But rather than say, well, hang on a minute, I didn't realize that there were black people who had the same experiences I had, the same life experience. And so, you know, he would rather say that I wasn't really black than, than change his opinion. And so, you know, it's important to change people's opinions. How did you feel when he said that? I was, uh, to be honest, I was just incredulous. I just could not believe. First of all, I couldn't believe that he thought it. 
And I couldn't believe he said it because at the time they said it, he didn't think there was anything wrong with saying that. You know, I, to this day, I've never spoken to him about it. I don't, I haven't seen him for years and years and years. I never spoke to him about it again because what was the point? You know, but I, I always remember it. Yeah, you know, actually, if he listens to this podcast, he'll probably remember it too for the first time. Well, it's certainly a good starting point for one of your podcast series or or a chapter in your book. That is for sure. Yeah. Actually, that's a good point. Actually, and maybe yes, maybe you're not really black. That's a, that's a great title, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You heard it here first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but this is the thing, isn't it? You know, the the creative talking through of of concepts and of different medium and what a medium can actually give people. I love podcasting because people plug these podcasts into their ears mm-hmm. and they are on a walk or they're in the gym or they're doing house work or whatever they're doing but they can put their own images to the voices and they can also find things that relate to their lives and they can project their own movies their own stories whilst listening to what you're saying and for me that's the magic of the podcast yeah I think I mean obviously it's a new art form Mm. uh you know I haven't got all the way with it yet you know I don't listen to that many podcasts I'm still I'm afraid I'm still wedded to music. <laughs> so when when I have a minute, I'm listening to either some new music or, or, or something musical, because that's what really moves me. But there's no question the podcast has a place. I know my wife listens to podcasts all the time, and uh, many of my family members are, are listening and, and, and recommending them. And I think, I think it's a really important new art form because, first of all, I think the people's attention spans have changed. And people aren't, as I said earlier, prepared to necessarily listen to a whole album's worth of music by people. And also, I think that the podcast often puts things in context, which people haven't understood. And so when used properly, I think it's, it's, a, it's a really important art for me and an important medium. You know, I, I, would need, I need to get with it. I need to get with the program. <laughs> Absolutely. And what, what's so special is you can put music in it as well. It doesn't have to just be, the, you know, you can give illustrations of, of pieces of music in, in the middle of a podcast. Yeah, I, I need somebody to help me do that. I mean, I, I think, you know, what, what I need to do if I'm ever going to do a decent podcast is get a decent editor because <laughs> I, I just jump from place to place and I'm not very good yet at focusing well I'm sure in the music industry you know the right person I well I say somebody's actually asked me there's there's a there's a music industry guy who's asked me about podcasting and he has he has a whole sort of podcast company and it's quite a big one first of all I have to have the confidence that people want to listen and then I have the have to have the focus to get the series together there are a couple of people I'd like to talk to on podcast who are people who have got even longer experience in the music industry than I have and, and have really quite interesting background stories. And I'd, I'd like to get their stories out there. It's a matter of how I do that. Well, for me, I just imagine that I've got one person listening. And if one person is listening, then I'm very happy. And I know that there are a lot more. So just to have that one person who you think would be interested in hearing that story, target yeah. them, and then you've got a podcast great advice I'll, I'll, I'll try and <laughs> I'll try and do that I've actually spoken to a couple of guys about about doing it. so maybe before lockdown finishes I'll call them up and see if they're if they're amenable to you know having a conversation with me for further transmission 
I think when everybody, when anyone ever suggests to you that you should write a book or you should mm. have a podcast, you've already got an audience. Oh, that's a good, that's a good way of thinking. Yeah, a couple of people said have said to me, "Oh, you should write a book," and I'm going, "Well, yeah, who's going to read it?" You know, because the thing is, you know, I'm not well known, and that's as much by design as anything. I say I'm not on social media, and that's definitely by design. And so I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that's all very well, but nobody really knows who I am, which is good. You know, I, I quite like that. I've never really craved and still don't crave the limelight. That's not my position. That's not my role. You know, people with real talent should be in the limelight. And in some ways, I kind of balk at the, at the new 15 seconds of fame thing that everybody feels they have the right to be famous you know I don't I, I'm not really with that you now I think that um, yes you have the right to be famous if you've done something exceptional you know people want to be famous just for being famous and that's a weird thing for me yeah I, I, and you've worked with some very talented people and supported them through their careers and I think that a lot of people want to hear that story as much as the, the the people who are in the limelight. They want to see how someone can support others. I think that people who are on this podcast who come to me, they always underestimate what they do and why they do it. And for me, I know that someone out there will be inspired by your story because other people will say, well, that's what I want to do. Yeah, I don't want to have the limelight, but I'd love to do something like he's done. Yeah, well... As I said earlier, I, I hope that, that it does inspire people and not because it's me, but because, I mean, kind of because they didn't know that there were people like me, if you like, you know, the, the fact that it can happen. And sometimes if you follow your dreams, then it happens, it works out for you. You know, I think one of the things that happens a, a, um, a lot now, and I think about is that a lot of people who are impressed or um, I think inspired is probably too strong a word, but along, along that journey to being inspired by the career of someone like me, it's actually through the prism of history. So if I say, oh, I remember you know, taking Stevie Wonder on stage with Bob Marley in 1979, which I do remember, then the prism of history makes it seem a lot more remarkable because of the fame of something like Bob Marley and people don't realize that people still alive who have a connection, if you like, with Bob Marley. So to a lot of young people, what they are doing now will be very important through the prism of history. So I think it's important that they don't discount their current achievements, you know, people who are currently doing stuff, you know, will ultimately be famous because what they're doing will, in reflection, have some real importance and significance. You know, I think what bothers me, I say, were people kind of chasing instant fame. You know, I think like a lot of, I guess like a lot of recording artists, when you look at the body of their work and you look at back at on, on how long it's lasted, that's kind of how you judge people. You know, you judge people by the long-term impact they make 
rather than one day impact. I love that. I love that whole reflection of the prism of history. And it, it reminds me of, of my daughter's just before lockdown, she just went over to Auschwitz and she was responsible for passing on the knowledge for the next generation. So she was taken out there. She met someone who was involved in, in the whole um, camp and yeah. it's because there are very few survivors and so what they've done is they've got projects with hundreds of school children from around the world to come in and meet the people and so that they can have that story passed down the generations so it's yeah. not forgotten that's and fantastic that's it great. is it was an it's amazing experience and she's very um honored and privileged to to have been part of that project so just as you your responsibility is almost to document the stories that you've got that you've had for, for the future generations and of the people that you have met who are no longer with us yeah well maybe i should be, get on with that next you ask me what i should do maybe that's what i'll, I'll start today Sounds fantastic. Keith, it's been amazing speaking to you today. I've absolutely loved our conversation. Uh, could you leave the audience with one final message? Um, I see. It's, that's a really difficult thing to do because, like I say, I don't really see my place to preach to people. I think that the, the one final thing I'll say is, is really try, if you are really inspired by something, you know, try it, you know, follow your dreams because you never know what might happen. You know, I think the important thing is never look back and wonder what would have happened if I had gone after what I really wanted, you know, rather than settle for something less. You know, try and go for, you know, what you're really passionate about. Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star iTunes review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and become a member of the inspiring, uplifting, and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.